duty, everyone. Welcome back to Are Your Parents Proud of You? And today I am joined by... Oh, that's my cue. Hi, I'm Jenna. I I just, I don't do anything. I, I'm going to hey, be honest. that's not true. I'm the editor of a podcast that requires very few edits most of the time, unless Matt fucks up something. Hey, 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 hey. And I don't fuck up at all. No, you're a very professional boy. Even though we were just talking about before we started recording all the fuck-ups I have made. Eh, it's fine. It's it's all part of the learning process. Um, anyway, you should talk about our guest this week, Matt. Uh, our guest whose name I totally remembered. But, wow. you know, just for the folks at home who maybe didn't remember, well, who, who's, our, who's our guest? Who's our guest this week? Dustin Rothbard. He is the- uh, Yes, I knew that. He is a co-founder and artistic director of Blank Theater Company. Currently, he is in The Wild Party, which is being presented, produced by uh, Blank Theater, running August 26th to September 25th at the Reginald Vaughn Theater in Chicago. Dustin and I talked over back in May about the origins of his theater company and just the life he has presented for himself. And my goodness, he has had a story, Jenna, let me tell you you are going to be enthralled with what he has to talk about. I'm looking forward to it. Let's let's get into this bad boy. All right. And here we go. I don't know what that sound effect was, but I'm here for it. Here we go. Hello, Dustin. How are you? Oh, hello, Matt. How are you? I'm Hi. good. I'm lovely. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. So... It's uh, we were actually just discussing before we actually hit the record button that you we were both thinking of like well we know of each other you know we've gone to parties we've gone to karaoke nights before um, but we've actually like and we've like mutually talked with each other but we've never yeah. had like this one on one before where we're diving deep into each other's lives uh, which is I is that typical for you first of all. It can be. I I meet a lot of people through theater, and I think theater people like to go out and drink, and they like to talk. Yep. Um, and I sometimes connect with people very quickly, uh, so it's not unheard of uh, for me, especially because uh, I'm excited about today. I'm sometimes a guarded person, and it takes a little bit, actually, for me to, like, really open up to people, so I'm excited that we get to spend this quality time together today no i'm excited and doing my research about blank theater uh congratulations on first of all just coming back and thank you doing um what sounds like just amazing work uh, you know we love the story of storefront theater of a bunch of friends or artists coming together and saying we want to do good work we want to make our own work we want to start a theater company what, how does Blank Theater stand out, you think, from other storefront theaters? And I mean, because, you know, we have, it's the Steppenwolf story of just a bunch of artists wanting to do good work and doing it from basement to black boxes or whatever. It, it totally is. And so I'm an alum of Illinois State. And, and so that's where, you know, the Steppenwolf founders you know, come from. Nice. So even though they have no formal relationship with our school, our school really likes to shove that 
down our throats. So it was a very big thing in college thinking about uh, who are the people I, I want to start a theater company with, you know, you're looking for those people. So it was something that was, you know, sort of in the back of my mind. I think what makes us stand out is a, we're very scrappy and we're very DIY. Uh, we have no theater has any money, but yeah. we really have no money. Um, it, it It's kind of incredible that we've made it as far as we have, because we are completely donation funded. We have not received any grants yet. We're just kind of too new. Uh, and with the pandemic, all of the grants that came out to keep, uh, you know, art organizations afloat was for, you know, a company. So like the Goodman doesn't have to close their doors after 95 years. Right. So we we really just rely on money from ticket sales and then people that believe in our work along the way. I think a big difference for us is before we tried to produce, I think a lot of theater companies are, let's put on a play and they don't think about the company aspect that comes second. Mm -hmm. And for us, it was, let's really try to build an organization. So we spent six months of planning before we filled out any paperwork. And then we spent a year fundraising before we tried to produce a show because we had no money. So where were we going to put on a musical? Uh, musicals cost a lot of money, double what a play costs. And in Chicago, costs have been rising over time significantly. The storefront model is a lot harder now than it was back during the time when all those little storefronts were popping up. Right. So uh, it's funny. We never set out to explicitly just do musicals. We did one play in our first season. But at the time that we were coming up, a lot of companies that were like six, seven, eight years old, they weren't, you know, fully established institutions. They started closing for whatever reason. And there were less companies doing musicals. And because uh, I do a lot of musical theater, my co-artistic director, Danny Capinos, uh, both directs and music directs, we were like, all, our network of people do musicals and it's very easy to say, come to this cabaret, pay 20 bucks, have a couple drinks in here, like really good singers. So it just seemed like our audience clearly wanted musicals and they were, you know, we did one play that very few people came to, which was a shame. And the musicals did really well. And we were like, oh, why are we trying to fight against what the city and the audience clearly want us to be? Yeah. Um, so that's kind of how we've gotten into this position of, well, we have no money, so we're not going to try to create a Broadway set because we can't. Right. And we're in a room with uneven black floors, 50 chairs. Uh, we're really good at painting a wall and painting a floor. <laughs> um, the, the, set, our, the set for our production of She Loves Me was a gorgeous painted wall, a gorgeous painted floor, four stools, two chairs and a trunk. That was the set because it's what we could afford. And so we've really embraced minimalism out of both what we have out of necessity and also, well, let's strip this down to its essence. And when you're not worried about crazy technical elements, then you can really just focus on the acting because that's all that is. And that's why I go to the theater to see good acting. I don't care if you have a zillion bucks or not. I want to see good acting. And I think that our, our work is very actor driven and it seems to be resonating with people yeah no i would agree and top of all that you know actors want to get paid and that's like the one thing we and you know i've done 
shows that hasn't gotten paid or paid very little. You know, I've gotten paid 20 bucks to do. Oh yeah. Two week runs or whatever, but you know, people do for the craft, but that's the one thing that sometimes theaters think like we can just actors will just say yes to anything. Uh, which There's is a little truth to that. Yeah. Um, I, I was very much one of those actors and I got burnt out really quickly. And the thing is, yes, we want to get paid. And obviously I think everyone should be paid more than they are. Everyone should be paid more than they make at blank. We have very little money and we pay what we can, but where it, where the idea to like start it came from, it comes from money. I had just come off of three productions back to back, two of which were like the most money I had ever made. And the work was really unfulfilling. The working conditions were really unsafe. Um, and I got to a point where I didn't care that I was getting paid so much money because my time is worth more than that. Right. And if the work, like you put so much of yourself into the work and if it's not going to fulfill you and you feel like you are in harm, um, like that's not worth my time. And it got to a point where I was just so frustrated that these theaters that I was being told, these are the places you should want to work because they are going to pay you or they are going to move your career ahead were some of the shittiest experiences I've ever had. And some of the best experiences I've ever had have been getting paid nothing with people that are there that want to tell this story, want to do that work. And so, you know, one of the people I started the theater company with, our managing director, Aaron Mann, was in two of those three shows that's where we met and I was like dude aren't you sick of like working at places like this and uh, he was like yeah this is a shit show and so it came out of I no longer cared about the money and I know that's like ridiculous to say obviously I would like to make a living acting right. but I wanted to do work that like at least I would know I would do a show a year that was going to fulfill me artistically where I was going to work with the artists I wanted to work with and no one was, you know, going to get hurt or abused. Have you ever turned down a role or an offer from a theater company that pays, we'll say, pretty good uh, because of the, the history or their previous working conditions? I haven't turned down an offer. It's more so I choose not to go back. I won't audition there anymore. Um, sometimes because you want to work, you'll forget about it or you're willing to overlook it and be like, mm, maybe they've changed. And then you go into the audition and then you're like, why did you want to be in that room? They were so shitty to you. And right. you know, they were shitty because you've worked there and you know that. Right. So, you know, there are a lot of theaters on my, I'm uninterested in you list and it's, it's growing to be pretty significant and you know i i worry about if uh if chicago is the the long-term place for me now only because the list of places i just don't want to work is significant and so it you know also limits my options and you know i'm i'm i still think i'm more willing to take a chance on a smaller newer company who i understand might not have their shit together yeah but like are doing it for the right reasons than some of the established places. And I hear a couple of the theaters that are on my shit list 
have improved exponentially. And I'm like, that's great. They should. But I don't have to go back there. And frankly, to be honest, I don't know that they would want to hire me because at the time it was such a bad experience that like I complained about, you know, unsafe working conditions. So, you know, I think there's some mutual, you know, disinterest there. I had to fill a Google Doc uh, form after doing a show. Uh, and uh, it was like the show just ended. Uh, it was like a mess. Oh, sure. And, you know, sometimes you just need that little time to yourself to sort of just unwind of like what the last couple of weeks, month was. So I go, I'm, I'm at dinner by myself. I'm in a diner. I'm just taking it all in. And again, email saying like, congrats on your run. It was a lot of fun. It's hugely successful. Uh, can you fill out this Google Doc form about me? And just so I can take it all in and see what to do next time. And I was wondering, how honest do I want to be <laughs> right No, now? that's so real. I've, I've filled those out too. And the question is always, not only how honest do you want to be, because we're always so worried about pissing people off or being labeled as difficult, but also how honest are they really looking for you to be? Right. I was completely honest. I think at one point I was sort of like dancing around my answer. But I think at just some point I was like, you know what? Fuck it. And just went straight in. Um, and it was a very, for me at least, a very just... It felt good just to get everything off the chest of, look, I don't think this person's a bad person. I think maybe, and you know, we are, I was taught in school to not just judge someone based on these specific experiences, judge them as a whole. Right. So I, and I wrote down like, this maybe wasn't easy for this kind of a person. And I have to understand that. That being said, this was my experience would I work with them again? I'm not sure, but I'm hoping they can grow from this. And they messaged me uh, recently and they, and we had a long talk about it. And it was one of those like, oh, I will accept the fact that I will give you props. You acknowledged what you got yourself into and you, and you owned up to it. So that, at least that gives me the idea of, okay, maybe I will work with you again, just to see what has happened? I think some people are amicable to change and some people want to be better. And then I think some people do not. Right. Uh, or are not capable of it. Um, you know, the one of the experiences I was alluding to that led to me wanting to start blank uh, was it wasn't actually, I think, the worst theatrical experience of my life. But there are so many things that were heinous about it that any, anyone who was a part of this production and this company doesn't exist anymore. They only did two shows and then they a, ran out of money and we realized all of the things they were doing wrong. Some people are just not meant to be administrators and, and be in charge and run theaters. But like collectively, the whole cast left strike together and went to the bank because we weren't sure that these massive checks were gonna cash um like this was a show where and i'm being diplomatic and not saying what it was yeah. but the people the people who know will know exactly what i'm talking about if you know you know uh like we walked into the first day of rehearsal we were rehearsing 
in the basement of a mansion. It was not a like a traditional rehearsal room. Someone was renting a legitimate mansion and we were rehearsing in the basement of this suburban mansion. And we're like, oh, this is different. And uh, do we have a stage manager? And the director uh, was like, well, what do, what do I need a stage manager for? This assistant director here is going to write down your blocking. Like, what do you need a stage manager for? And we were all like, um, okay. Right. And he was like, yeah, the space that we're renting, like, gives us a board operator. What do we need that for? And we were like, there's no stage manager. Fuck. That's, that's a cry for help. That's right yeah. there. Like we tried, we tried to like ease them into high. We're like, we could find you someone. We all know people. Do you want one? And he was like, no, no, I don't need that. Um, and like, oh God, um, we had a 14 piece orchestra and the music director was like, where, where are we going to put them? And the director was like, oh, we're going to put them backstage and you're going to be on a screen and they'll be able to see you like in the back of the theater. The screen was like a 14 foot projector screen. So the music director's head like took up the entire surface area of a wall. So in a blackout, it was glowing and he put this orchestra backstage, right? And it took up the entire stage, right? You could not enter from stage, right? Because this orchestra that he didn't account for the size was there. So we get into tech and he had to reblock the whole show where we could only ever enter from stage left. Oh, Jesus. Like things like this, like no, nobody necessarily got hurt. It was just baffling. And we didn't realize that the director was kind of a pathological liar. And uh, it was just things like this. Like we didn't get a set until like the night before opening. Um, and because, yeah, wait, that wait, was the sets before opening. Yeah, we were like to look at during. Tech. No, we were on tech in it, like an empty stage with some light cues. And then finally, like a couple like. <laughs> what? Like, a, yeah, it was it was fucking wild. And so we got a couple set pieces that rolled on and off that had some like greenery on them or like a fireplace and things. So we ended up getting some things, but we were like, where is our set? Uh, it, it was just like a wild time. And so it wasn't unsafe. It was uncomfortable. And there were children in the cast. So of course they were like, is this normal? And we're like, no, this is not what theater is normally like. Yeah. And like, because he was making up so many lies in his, uh, the director in his curtain speech to the audience, he was like, everything you're going to see on this set, it's old because it takes place in old times. Like this child's doll you're going to see is 110 years old. It was not. And the poor little girl who was holding this doll, she dropped it backstage and it broke one night. And this like 11 year old child was like in tears because she thought she had broken this 110 year old doll. And we all had to comfort this child and be like, no, no, it's it's fine. It's a dumb little prop and it's not old. Like you're fine. Like just like wild things like this. It was just everything that could be weird was weird. That's awesome. I, I have too many stories to tell. I'll tell you when we're done recording, uh, but for the sake of time. So uh, you grew up in Northbrook. You were a suburban, yes, you were a suburban kid. I did. Uh, what were you I like as j- a child? I joke that I'm the white trash of Northbrook. Oh, God. Because, so no, I don't know if you know, um, no, so Northbrook's pretty affluent. It's very Jewish. I'm a member of the tribe. Um, everybody growing up had a lot more money than my family. Um, I was very hyperactive as a child. 
My mom says that I sang before I could talk, which tracks. She says that she'd put on the uh, the Disney sing-along VHS tapes and I would be bopping my head along. Right. Yeah, follow, follow, follow the bouncing ball singing, you know, yeah. Beauty and the Beast oh. and Aladdin. Yeah. My like one of my earliest, earliest memories is I remember seeing Disney's Aladdin in movie theaters and I was born in 89. So I must have been like three or four years old. And I remember sitting on my dad's lap. I think we were very close because I remember like having to like look up at the screen. And I just remember I remember a vivid image of the genie. So I think that might be like the first movie I remember seeing and so I, I was always bouncing around, but I was so hyperactive. Nobody kind of knew what to do with me. One of my mom's favorite stories to tell, she'll love that I'm telling this story, is um, I was the kid who, because I was so hyper, if I like was playing with a toy in preschool and I saw across the room another toy that I wanted, I didn't care who I had to trample or get through to go get that toy because it had caught my eye. And so, you know, some of some of the really bitchy North Shore moms would like make comments, which my mother did not stand for. And, uh, you know, my mom, my mom, like stopped talking to certain people because they tried to talk shit about her son. And uh, but the teacher said to my mom, he's not a bad kid. He, he oozes goodness. He's just, you know very hyper and and very loud which i think you would agree with <laughs> but um yeah i was unfocused and um i just like had a hard time focusing and i kind of view my childhood and my life in two ways and it's kind of before i was 10 and after i was 10 my parents got to started getting divorced when i was 10 and so life really shifted because like for the first 10 years you don't realize it when you're a child. Like I can look back now the first 10 years, I felt like one of those kind of privileged Northbrook kids kind of got what I wanted had, was able to do all these different extracurriculars and things got what I want. I got nine days of present or eight days of presents for Hanukkah and got, you know, a big present. And then after the divorce, it was like, here's your one thing. You can pick one extracurricular activity. So I sort of say that, in a weird way, as fucked up as my parents' divorce made me and affected every facet of my life going forward, yeah. it also, unbeknownst to 10-year-old me, was the most humbling thing that could happen because I do, if I'm really honest with myself, I think I could have grown up to be a really insufferable, privileged kid. Yeah. And the money going away was kind of probably the best thing that ever happened to me in that way because i've had to work for everything ever since then right I, I met my parents had friends who were exactly like that and you know we were fine growing up we had money but we were you know my parents had three other kids three other kids with me so you know i'm like, the oldest so i got how many, the how many siblings do you have so most people don't know that i have siblings um i have a sister um in name uh, we've been I've been estranged from both my father and my sister. Uh, my father had been estranged. Now we're in 2022, so it would be either I think we're on going on 11 years now, maybe just a decade. 2011. No, we're in 2012, so it would be 11 years. I've been estranged from my dad and my sister, just about the same. So um, I tend to talk more openly about my father because I have a 
had a better relationship, I think, with my father growing up before he, you know, pretended to be Scarface and became a cokehead. But my sister, listen, my I, my sister's very brainwashed. She hasn't talked to me or my mother, uh, and it affects my mom very deeply, a lot more than it really does me. I've really been able to compartmentalize that. Yeah. But um, my sister is like, just about five years younger than me. And so growing up, it it was just enough of an age difference that we were never like super close. We would talk. She got into theater because I was doing theater. It wasn't really her favorite thing. It was never a thing she like pursued. She wasn't bad actually at it um, and had a couple nice parts in children's theater. But I think she was doing it because her brother did it. Um, We did do one on a show together just before I left for college because she really wanted to be in a show with me because she knew that I was going to go pursue it professionally. Um, so I think that was like a hobby of hers and that was probably ever the closest that we were. Um, I, I mean, we'd play together. We'd play video games and sports and stuff like that. But in terms of like real life shit that I think some siblings get close to, that was just never our relationship. But because I'm the oldest, uh, I definitely felt like I was a little more spoiled. Like I remember when my sister was being born to like make me feel okay with uh, my parents having another baby. Like my grandmother took me to Disney World while my mom was popping out a kid and it was just me and Nana. And I was like, but dad took me by myself last year. And they were like, well, you get to go back. I was like, this is awesome. So um, definitely as the oldest got a, got a little spoiled in that respect. Which is weird because the oldest, you know, speaking as the oldest, we don't get shit sometimes. Yeah, I think they knew that I was obnoxious and, and, and hyper enough that they were like, what are we going to do with this kid? Well, yeah, we got to do with Dustin. Are you okay with where you're at with your life, with your family? Um... Pretty close to okay, I would say. Um, At first? No. Um, So we're jumping ahead a bit, but actually, um, uh, right out of college, I was working in a retail job. I was working at a women's clothing store. I was the only guy they had ever hired before at White House Black Market. And so all the women there were kind of like my extra moms. And something really uh, heinous had happened. A long story short, uh, my sister was suing my mother for college money because my father had told her to. It went on for two years. One day, I'm probably going to write something about it because it is the best thing you've ever seen on TV. It was wild. And uh, the judge had said to my father that you have to be a part of this case. The child has two parents. Both parents are a party to it. And my dad didn't want to go before the judge. So uh, yeah, on the 16th floor of the daily center out of the corner of my eye i saw my stepfather going into the restroom and my father followed him into the restroom and i caught it happening and i was like "Ooh, i don't like that i'm gonna follow them and i did and they got into a fight in the men's room and my father stabbed my stepfather in the neck with a ballpoint pen and then like dropped the pen yeah he and he got off of course because you know white men and he sold himself as like this working father taking care of his college-age daughter And so I had to like testify against my dad in court. It was wild Uh, just so he didn't have to, you know, appear before a judge and uh, the women at work could tell it was affecting me. And I knew I wasn't okay, 
but I didn't know how to process it. Um, I just thought like, this is my family. It's crazy. And all the women at work sat me down kind of intervention style. And I would have been like 23, 24 at the time. And they were like, Dustin, we think you need to go get some help for yourself. And we think that because of some you've told us have happened to you and also because you don't really have a stable healthy male figure in your life you may be exhibiting some behaviors that you don't realize that you are and if you don't go get some help for yourself you can't keep your job and I loved my job at the time it was really them trying to I don't know that they would have fired me I think that they were just really trying to push me to go get some help and so uh, I did and I've processed a lot of it and I, I think I'm okay to the point where I just don't, I know we're talking a lot about it, um, but I don't think about it on a day-to-day -day basis pretty often. It's just uh, like, I, I attribute it, I call it sort of like mourning a living person, right? When someone dies, you mourn them. I mourn the man that I knew my father to be and the memories that I have also acknowledging in hindsight, some of the memories are very fucked up. They're actually kind of funny because of some of the horrifically inappropriate things he did or said. Right. But you know, those are the memories you have. And I think on one hand, it's better to have some memories than none. Um, but that's my experience with it. So I would say that uh, on the most part, I just don't think about it mm -hmm. and not in like a pushing it down way. It's just, I've done enough work on myself that it's not prevalent. You know, you could, you can chase this person who would you desperately seek approval of, you know, your whole life. And then when you realize as an adult that they're not who you think they are, like what, what good is there in that? And so that's like what I kind of work toward every day is just not caring about that anymore. And when you have like, you know, we people talk about sometimes what what like as a child, a dream role or, you know, what parents or even role models or anyone in our lives that would kind of go back and be like, well, I remember when this person was a kid. Here you are in your life and you even said you divided your childhood life up into two parts. Um, is it and you said it's you're fine looking back on your life, but can it can you even remember not said a lot of the good times or moments you had as a, a child up to age 10 is it how would you even like if you had to define it really yeah i mean like my dad used to uh I, hockey is my favorite sport um i i'm i wish i was bigger if i was bigger i probably would have tried to play hockey more right. um i played i played a lot of sports as a kid but uh and i'm a huge sports fan but i'm not good at them because i'm short white and jewish so i was not i was not made the white mama in, i was not made to be an athlete that, that was Much, my favorite I don't, i'm not sure if you're an nba fan but yes I'm, i am the white I, mama's great Oh my God, every, when I was the first a kid, I was watching Bulls games when they were like, you know, pretty good. With Brian, Brian Scalabrini, he's a Brian legend. Scalabrini. He's a legend. I was so confused with like, cause the first game I watched all the way through um, was when they played like Philadelphia and they were like, this is when they were terrible. And it was the only, I only watched the fourth quarter of course of being the team by like 40. Right. And all of a sudden this 
guy comes out and I'm like, I'm so confused. I don't know who this guy is. He doesn't look like he should be on the team. Like literally like the crowd is going nuts every time. Like even if he goes near the ball, you know, all of a sudden he makes a shot and they go freaking crazy. You should, you should Google later if you're not familiar. There was a guy on Denver. I think his name was just Chris Anderson, but they called yeah, him Bird the Birdman. Birdman. Birdman, you know? Yeah, Bird- dude did not look like he should be on a basketball team. Oh, oh man, I was my favorite thing. In, I, I liked watching. Wild. Him. He was, and he was good. Like, because he started and he won some rings, and he- so this will be cool for. So when I was a kid in my neighborhood. Horace Grant, who played in the first three, you know, Bulls championship teams, he was playing for Orlando at this time. Horace Grant Jr. lived in the same subdivision that I, of townhouses that I lived in. So we were we were friends uh, until he moved to Deerfield, and we would do sleepovers at each other's houses. And uh, I was a big basketball person, so I had a Shaq jersey and a Penny Hardaway jersey. I had my Jordan jersey. Of course, Jordan's the GOAT. There will be no discussion of LeBron. But um, I had, like... I loved Charles Barkley, Hakeem Olajuwon, and we had a basketball hoop outside of our house. And so my dad would play two on one against me and Horace Grant Jr. And like when Horace Grant Jr. was in first grade, he was tall as fuck because his father is Horace Grant. So like I would wear my penny jersey and he'd throw on a Shaq jersey and we'd play two on one against my dad. Uh, And uh, I played hockey in the basement with my dad and my dad actually told me growing up he, when I was older, he was like, I'm going to be real with you, boy. He's like, I didn't always let you win. He was like, I, he was like, you had a wrist shot that on occasion, as I got older, was a little hard to block. And I was like, oh, too bad I'm five feet. Cause if you check <laughs> me into the boards, I'm going to be out for six months. Right. But I was fast. I was fast on the ice. I figure skated a little bit too. I've always loved that sport. And, uh, you know, it's sort of theater adjacent, but combines, you know, the athleticism of hockey. I wasn't, I didn't stick with it long enough because we couldn't afford it. It was when my parents got divorced, I was told pick theater or figure skating. And I was like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to do theater. Yeah. Um, the answer to what to do with hyperactive Dustin was theater. Um, Northbrook had, uh, I don't really know if they have it anymore. I know the Northbrook Theater exists. I don't know if their children's programs exist anymore because my mentor, uh, Doc Denhart, is long retired. But the Northbrook Children's Theater was a godsend to me. I grew up doing theater. Uh, it's It was ran through the Park District. It was ran by um, uh, Dr. Greg Denhart. They would do two shows during the year and then um, two four-week theater camps. I did pretty much every show four shows a year that they offered with little breaks here or there uh, but for the most part four shows a year through them from the time I was eight years old until the time I was like 16 when then they gave me a job um it is very safe to say if not for my mentor growing up that a I don't know what I'd be doing um because theater I found it very early in my life yeah and I knew by the time I was 12 or 13 I knew that's what I wanted to do with my life it started as a hobby of course but by 12 or 13 I knew that's what I wanted to do like as a child if people asked what I wanted to do with my life I always used to say I'm gonna be an actor and a lawyer and go to Northwestern and one of those things was true no that's just the origin of Saul Goodman right there actually R- right yeah. so uh you know Northwestern certainly 
really would never have taken me with my grades. And uh, <laughs> I understand the legal system, but I don't have the discipline to go to law school. But I did. I did become an actor. But uh, it is not only did that place give me a love of the craft and gave me training that anyone who went through that program, whether they were serious about doing theater or not, because it was just a hobby for you know most people. Yeah. It was a case of you don't really understand how lucky you are at the time until you look back. We had a gorgeous theater with a scene shop, with a fly system, with a full tech booth. And in the summer programs, the kids got to be in the booth calling the show. So I stage managed at like 13 and got to run a light board and learned how sound mixers work. And I got to pull the ropes and build sets and really every facet of theater and as someone who that like because of my hyperactivity and and I was a big trouble kid um, we don't have to get into it but I got kicked out of my high school and went to an alternative school for two years um, mainly because I was getting bullied and picked on but of course you get labeled a problem child and they don't know what to do with you right. uh, so um, the theater was kind of the only thing keeping me alive and subsequently I definitely had this attitude of, I don't need algebra. I'm going to be an actor. And so I didn't care about subjects that I didn't feel a need for, which fun fact, as an actor, I haven't fucking needed algebra. So I was right. Man, but, I've only went to Columbia because literally. Uh, you I know, it's funny you say that. Um, when I was, so I went to community college for a couple of years. Um, and I'm going to say, firstly, I am a huge proponent uh, for community college. I went to Harper College, Kevin Long was my teacher there. He is one of the most brilliant men I've ever met. In fact, he I just had coffee with him um, a night ago. He's gonna be my coach when I audition for grad school this upcoming year. Nice. Um, one of the best teachers I've ever had at a community college. Yeah. Um, so, but when I was transferring from community college to go finish my four year degree, again, I, I was so invested in theater and I've really been one of, I was one of those Broadway fanboys, And so I read everything, listened to everything and really like studied my industry. I kind of knew more than most people, A, my age and B, just like, if you were not a theater person, like I'd go to the, the school counselor and they didn't understand like what I needed to take to transfer, but I knew. Yeah. So no one was really going to help me. And to my detriment, I wish I would have had a coach or would have had someone who understood what the college audition system, even back in like 2010, was like. There are a few schools I didn't audition for that I think talent-wise I could have gotten into that I maybe could have afforded um, other than the school I ended up going to that I think I would have been better off at. And I think Columbia is one of those schools. I, I, would, I know I, it's not... I would agree and disagree with that. You know? I know I know what the flaws of, of Columbia College's program are, yeah. but I think for me, who would have who I was an MT kid who knew that their future was in musical theater. I love plays. I love doing plays. I seldom get hired to do that. I was a musical theater kid trapped in a straight acting program who got told by the head of their department that you're never going to be an actor. Why are you here? Uh, and that like musical theater isn't real acting. And I was like, okay, you're crazy. And I have three jobs lined up right after graduation. So instead, can you like teach me? And I kind of got shoved off into the corner. And I think if I would have been at a school like Columbia, um, I would have really 
thrown myself into the training and and who's to say like life would be very different. There's no, you know, I got into, I tell everyone, I got new, my number one choice of school in New York city. I got into Marymount Manhattan into their BFAMT program. It was my dream school. It was in New York city. I wanted it more than anything. And I was 20 and this was about eight months before my father and I had our falling out. And I didn't realize how much of an addict my father was. And like, as a child, even at 20, you're still a kid, right? You trust your parents. If you, if your parents are going to handle your financial aid, you trust them. Cause I didn't fucking know how to do financial aid. And my dad handled my aid and fucked it up. And New York did not give me enough money. And Illinois state was like your first year is pretty much paid for. And I was like, well, I'm poor GISU. You sound great. And I wish I wish I would have known about other schools and I wish I like, I regret not auditioning for CCPA. I regret not auditioning for Western Michigan. I regret not looking at Columbia. I don't know what would have happened, Yeah. but like I got into school in New York, who knows, right? You can play the what if game instead you deal with, you know, your life is what it is. And I grew, I learned an appreciation for straight plays. I don't know that I would have if I had just been in an MT program. Mm Um, like I love Chekhov. I've only ever been hired to do it once, but I fucking love it. Right. Um, I don't know that that would have happened at an MT program. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you take what you can get and you're always learning and always evolving and, and kind of got to piecemeal it. But I will, trying. I, Go ahead. I, I just want to circle back and say, cause it's very important to me. Um, if not for Northbrook children's theater and my mentor, I genuinely wouldn't be alive on this planet anymore. So I'm deeply grateful that I had that outlet as a child because it 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 helped me figure out what I want to do with my life. Yeah, I got to assist an artistic director for many years as my job. I got paid, and I don't know if I would be an artistic director or know how to like be a theatrical admin if I hadn't gotten to watch this person do this for years and years. So like, really, I am like where I'm at today because I had that program for you know a good 15 years of my life. No, that's awesome. I was gonna say I've been trying to get my old community college professor on this show for like two years now. And you went to CLC, right? I took a semester at CLC uh, after Columbia told me uh, the acting one credit class that I needed to take was full, which at the time was like that didn't make sense. And then find out like the next semester when I finally went back, it was like, oh no, they could have filled you in, uh, which. Again, whatever. Things like that happened at ISU too. They always found a way to keep people there. Except me. They tried to get me. They got me out a year sooner than they wanted to because the head of the department didn't like me. Well, my favorite part was like, okay, so I I took the community college classes there and knew that I was going to go back to Columbia in the fall. This was 2016. And, you know, I'm spending the summer trying to get registered. But of course, what, what class is getting filled up? That level one class that I needed to, I thought. That everyone has to take, right. And so literally I'm calling advisors and academics and financial aid. I'm like, what do I need to do? And the simplest phone call came, it was like one day in July where I'm like, I just begged the person. And she's like, what, did, what classes did you take this last semester? And I said, well, I took this and this. Uh, it was these two acting classes, like a voice for the actor and like a principal movement or something. Yeah. And she's like, okay, hold on, please. And she put me on hold and, uh, and she was off like two minutes. I come back and she was like, all right, you're in the acting two class now. Have fun. Oh, okay. Oh, wait a minute. I spent two months 
but sure, fine. It came off my academia, back. There, there are so many things that are fucked about academia. I So I go back and forth on, because I'm, I'm auditioning for grad school, and I'm doing it for a lot of reasons. I don't know that I want to teach. A lot of people tell me that I should and I don't know if I will or not, but if I do, God damn it, I want to fix so many things in theatrical academia that I witness because our goal should be to train professionals, to get them out in their four years, to genuinely prepare them because so many, I, I have to tell you, so like as an artistic director, I handle for blank, I handle casting because casting is sort of like my thing that I'm good at. Yeah. It's not what I want to make my living, but I am, I'm good at it. So I look at resumes and headshots all day long, and I don't know what some of these college programs are teaching their students because I, I receive resumes that just do not look like a professional theater resume, and they don't have the information that you need. And I'm like, you have paid, you have clearly paid someone for four years of training yeah. to prepare you for the real world, and part of that is business, and part of that is acting. And I think these schools view theater students as cash cows. Yeah. I, I hear horror stories from friends with children who are like auditioning for the BFA programs these days. Listen, I would I do not think I would get into undergraduate theater school today. I do not think I would get in the pre-screens and how many schools I hear that, you know, the girls especially have to audition for like 18 schools and you need to have these coaches and you need to have this. There's a huge barrier into obtaining higher theatrical education. And then once they're in, it's like, oh, we've got these theater kids. Let's let's milk them for all they're worth. When the reality is that this is a hard business, very few people are actually going to go into it. Those that do go into it don't always stay in it very long because they, they don't want to be poor and they find that they can make money and do something else that makes them happy. And I really think that the theatrical education system abuses that. Well, speaking of training, we have some time left, and we're going to play this game. Time for two. Two minutes on the clock. Two minutes of random icebreaker questions. No right, no wrong. I'm just curious to see what your opinion is. Are you ready? I'm so hyped. <laughs> All right, here we go. Three, two, one, go. Bruce Wayne or Batman? Batman. What do you like to have in order to get over a hangover? Greasy food. Earth, wind, or fire? Fire. What's your potter house? Oh, I am a Hufflepuff. Are you good at cooking? I'm getting pretty good. Jimmy John's or Subway? Subway. What movie would be greatly improved if it was made into a musical? Oh, God. Empire Records, which I hear they're working on. Favorite fairy tale? Oh. Uh, any of the ones in Into the Woods. <laughs> if you could have any animal as a pet, what would it be? When? Would you rather live permanently in a roller coaster park or a zoo? Roller coaster park. What's something you've tried that you will never, ever try again? Any spicy food. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know how to tie a bow tie? No, I do not. Favorite president? Barack Obama. Uh, favorite Beatle? Uh, Paul McCartney, who I'm seeing in a couple weeks. Nice. Favorite holiday? Favorite holiday? Um, Thanksgiving, I think. 
How much malarkey is a bunch of malarkey? Ask Joe Biden. Microwaves, good or evil? Oh, the best. Babysitters, good or evil? They're right. Who is the greatest game show host of all time? Oh, I got to say Alex Trebek. Favorite article of clothing? A hoodie. Step up hoodie. <laughs> did Han Solo shoot first? Yes, he did. How much work can a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck chuck chuck wood? A woodchuck woodchuck chuck would a woodchuck could chuck wood. Hey, and <laughs> I knew, I knew that was going to be the question I had to add in that. And I knew as soon as you were going to say that, I was like, just put the, the alarm right up to the, uh, the mic. And Outstanding. Right. Dustin, I have enjoyed talking to you this last hour. But before we go, my last question to you is, are your parents proud of you? My mom definitely is. And I hope one day to no longer care if my father is. Right on. Dustin Rothbart. Thank you so much, my friend. This was my absolute pleasure, friend. If you want to see The Wild Party, you can see it August 26th through September 25th at the Reginald Vaughn Theater. Any questions, you can email info at blanktheatercompany.org as well as getting your tickets at blanktheatercompany.org. Hey, Jenna, remember that one time we had a wild party and we had to work that one? Nope. Well, you had a job, remember? Uh, yeah, I had a job. It was the official beer drinker of the party for the Are Your Parents drinker. Proud of That's You? That's what I forgot about. Very ironic since I don't even like beer, but you know, when you have a job like that, you, you tend not to remember it the next day. And then you, and you're like, how did I make a million dollars? Uh, more like 20 bucks and a used condom. <laughs> um, Who's our guest next week, Matt? I, that was a really good segue. That was a terrible segue. I'm, I'm great at this. To Jesus Perez, the artistic director of Chicago Kids Company, Jenna. Okay, well, good We're talking about him. kids next week. Okay, well, yeah, I can see how that might be a bad segue. Yeah, just a, just a little. Uh, am I fired? We'll have that meaning after. Oh, okay. All right, folks, like <laughs> us on Facebook. Like us on Instagram. Like us at that email. What's that email, Jenna? It's parentsproudpodcast at gmail.com. Also, our... Our Facebook and Instagram are also at Parents Proud Podcast. Um, I've had a lovely time here today. All right, folks, see you next week.